Well, this morning, uh, we return to the Gospel of, of John, uh, and we have made it to the 19th verse of chapter 1, uh, which means we now come to the historical section of this great book. We spent three weeks together in verses 1 through 18, uh, and that was much more theological, right? Uh, we talked a lot about who Jesus is as God, uh, as the creator, as the word, uh, as the light, and as the life. Uh, we talked about the incredible reality that in love, full of grace, this Jesus, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, John started his gospel there. He set for us a foundation of who Jesus is. Because remember, the ultimate goal of John in this book, in this gospel, is that you and I would believe, that we would believe in Jesus Christ, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing in him, that we would have life in his name. Everything that John, the apostle, writes in this book is geared towards that end, that we would believe Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the promised king, the son of God. Well, now we turn to verse 19 of this first chapter, and we find here a testimony of who Jesus is. It's why verse 19 begins like this. This is the testimony of John, and we're referring to John the Baptist here. So today, what we're going to be doing together over the, the duration of the time I have is looking at John the Baptist and his testimony, the messenger, and then we're going to look at his message. That's where we're going to go this morning. We're going to look at the messenger himself, and then we're going to consider his message. And in that, what we're going to do is explore some essentials for the Christian witness uh, broadly. Okay, and so we're going to jump in this together. So the first section we're going to be considering today is the messenger himself. That's where we're going to start. John the Baptist, the messenger. If you remember, uh, back a couple of weeks ago, there was this uh, little parenthesis, this parenthetical statement about John the Baptist in verse 6. Okay, that was a couple of weeks ago, so you have to go back and remember. But it said there about John, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. We should understand that the period of time that leads up to Jesus' coming on the scene, as well as John the Baptist coming on the scene, was a very unique period of time for the nation of Israel. Uh, God's people, the Israelites, had this incredible relationship with the Lord. And historically, we know that God would oftentimes relate to his people by sending his prophets to speak to his people on his behalf. He would send the prophets to speak to the leaders of the nations, to the prophets, to, to give direction and correction for how his people should go about living their lives. But 400 years before Christ, what we're told is that God actually makes this decision to become silent. Uh, there were no prophets between Malachi, which is the last prophet you can read about in the Old Testament, and John the Baptist, the one that we're exploring today. There was no word 
direct word from God for 400 years. And that's actually a really long time, right? I mean, I could give you a, a, a whole bunch of you know, history on how big 400 years ago, but I was thinking even about where I'm from, the United States, that the United States isn't even 400 years old. And there's like, you could take a whole class. You have to actually take it like three times in middle school and high school, U.S. history. Right? It's not even 400 years old. And, and, and over this course of 400 years, God does not speak. He is silent. But then one day, sort of out of nowhere, it was somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C., there was this man whose name was Zechariah. We know that Zechariah was a priest. He was from the tribe of Levi. He was a Levite. And the Bible tells us that one day he was granted this great honor. Actually, the lots are cast. It's like dice, if you think about it that way, are cast, and his name comes up. He gets this great honor of being able to be the one who gets to go into the temple, into the Holy Holies, to offer some special worship before God. And this was something uh, that only one man, one priest, was able to do or allowed to do per year. And so it's a great honor. And so one day we read that he's fulfilling that duty. He goes in to the Holy of Holies. He's fulfilling this, his priestly task in the temple. He's got bells tied to his ankle. Okay, the reason for that um, he'd have bells tied to his ankle on a rope, and the other priests would be holding onto the rope. And the reason for that is if because he made a mistake, he would drop dead, and then they'd have to drag him out. Okay, so it's this great honor, but it is a very delicate, <laughs> holy, precious task. And in the middle of doing that, we are told that the angel Gabriel shows up in that room with him, which, again, is a really big deal. First of all, there's an angel with him. That's a big deal. But more than that, more significant than that is remember, God has been silent for 400 years. And he knows that. There's been no prophet, no angel, nothing. But now an angel shows up. And this is the message, I'll paraphrase it, but this is the message that Gabriel brings or speaks to Zechariah. He says this, I have really good news for you, Zechariah. I know that you and your wife haven't been able to have children. And in fact, even now you're too old. You're past childbearing age. But let me tell you, the Lord is speaking here. You are going to have a son and you're going to name that son John. And this is what Gabriel tells Zechariah about his son, John. He prophesies about this son. This is Luke chapter one, verse 16 and 17. And this man, John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So we're told here that this baby boy who is coming, John, that he's coming into the world with a very specific purpose, and that is to bear witness about the light, about the Messiah. And so John, we know, is raised underneath this calling. He is set apart, actually, for this. He takes this thing called the Nazarite vow. He's prepared, or being prepared for this. And then, 
around the age of 30, again, seemingly out of nowhere, John the Baptist starts to preach. He's living alone, we're told, out in the desert. He's sort of a nomad. Okay, he lives an isolated life, a little strange. He's got this really long hair, really long beard. Imagine how long your hair would be or your beard would be if you hadn't cut it for 30 years. This is John. We're told that he is dressed in camel hair for clothes. Okay, you can Google that as well. Camel hair clothes, you're gonna get some weird stuff. This is John the Baptist. And then the Bible tells us that he had this really specific diet as well, that he lived his life on two items. He ate locusts and he ate honey. That was his diet. By the way, by the way, I am almost 100% sure that all of us here believe that that meant that John ate grasshoppers, locusts. Um, you were probably taught that by somebody. Uh, but actually, we can't say that. We don't know that. Because locusts is also a plant in Israel. Um, it's actually a seed pod that comes from a tree known as a carob tree. You can look that up. I was in Israel, actually, um, and kind of going around, and I was with this tour guide. His name was Avi, amazing man. He was 80 years old. He had the entire Bible memorized, all 66 books in Hebrew, and 95% of it memorized in English. And so every time we went to a scene, he would just be like, oh, it's this. And he would just start quoting scripture. And I'm just like crying for a week. It was awesome. <laughs> Seriously, I just did nothing but cry for him. Oh, God. You know, he's like, in Hebrew, I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying, but it's, this is amazing, you know. Uh, but I remember one day we were um, up, uh, we were up on, this, on this, this mountain overlooking the temple. And there was this tree. And this pod fell off the ground and I picked it up, and it looked almost like a pea pod, and I opened it up, and I'm like, oh, what is this? He's like, oh, it's, that's locust. It's like, what? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, you Americans, you all think that John the Baptist ate grasshoppers, you know, but it's a, it's a pod. It's like a, almost like cocoa. You ground it up, and you could mix it in honey, and we eat it here. I was like, so could he have eaten bugs? Possibly. But was he eating from a tree called the carob tree, a locust plant, I don't know, okay? Either way, mind blown, I know, okay, right? Um, so the next time you go around and color the book, your kid, and John the Baptist there holding a bunch of grasshoppers, maybe, maybe not, okay? All right, but just for a moment, okay, we have to move away from his appearance, move away from John's diet. Actually, the Apostle John doesn't even mention any of those things because he's not concerned with those things. But we learn that John starts to preach. And we learn that he's preaching this unique message. It's a message of repentance. He's actually telling people, he's calling people to turn from their old ways, to turn from their sin, and to trust in the Lord. And then we're told that he actually starts to baptize people as a symbol of their repentance. He's doing this in the Jordan River. Uh, this symbol of them turning their lives around and being made clean. And, and we are told in the scriptures that people are responding to this message, actually. From all over Jerusalem, all over Judea, people were coming to listen to John's preaching because his words were so powerful. John spoke with this amazing amount of 
courage and conviction. And he is telling people that the Messiah is coming soon. Any day now, he's, he's coming. And so we're, we're told in, in another gospel that this made John extremely popular. So much so that the religious leaders of that day take notice and there's a, a, a little bit of concern. And what we are told is that a delegation of leaders is put together and sent out to meet John to ask him what's going on. What are you trying to do? What are you attempting to accomplish? Because he is impacting hundreds, if not thousands, of people. And that's the context for today's passage. This is where we pick up our story today in John 1, verse 19. Okay? This is what the Apostle John writes to us. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So again, John's influence has grown. And now here comes some spiritual leaders to try and figure him out. And they ask him a simple question. Who are you? And this is reasonable, right? It's a reasonable question. Remember, there hasn't been a prophet for 400 years in Israel. And now here, someone who's not part of the religious elite, not someone who's living in like downtown Jerusalem, who's gone through all of the proper schooling, there's this guy out in the wilderness, the desert, okay, showing up, preaching this prophetic message. He's calling people to repentance. He's telling people that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the Messiah is on his way. So they ask, who are you? And so John responds. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. He says, I'm not the Messiah. That's who I am. I am not the Savior. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So we must understand here, in the Old Testament, there were two very specific prophecies about people who were going to come other than the Messiah. We're told that one is going to come who is like Elijah in the spirit of Elijah to, to preach and to prophesy. And then we're also told that a prophet like Moses is coming as well. A, a man who would come and mediate between man and God. And so that's why these religious leaders are asking these very specific three questions. Are you one of these three? Are you the Christ? Are you the one who's coming like Elijah? Are you the prophet? And to that, John responds, no, no, and no. And so, verse 22, so they said to him, okay then, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then we get to see, start to see a, a glimpse of John the Baptist's character. Verse 23, he says this. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So what we see here from John is, first and foremost, great boldness. It takes boldness to be an effective witness 
for the gospel. John is strong. He is bold. Remember, he is living this set-apart life. He's actually taken a Nazarite vow to to live separately. He doesn't cut his hair. Um, He lives as holy as he can. Like, he's not even allowed to eat grapes because they're from the vine which makes wine. Like, it's very set apart. And he is preaching this very difficult message of repentance, which, again, is calling people to change. Stop going this way and start going that way. But we also see here deep humility from John the Baptist. And that is an equally important characteristic of a person who's an effective witness for Christ in the gospel. You need to be bold, but you also need to be humble. And we see both here from John the Baptist. Because let's understand here, John could have very easily established something for himself. He could have set himself up really well here. He was so popular. He, he could have established uh, John the Baptist Ministries, right? Uh, he could have started a church plant, First Baptist Church of the Wilderness. Right? You can imagine it, right? <laughs> Gosh, so corny. <laughs> right? He could, have, he could have kept this following for himself. He'd be like, oh, I'm the one who was prophesied about. I'm the one that the angel Gabriel like, spoke all these, these wonderful promises to. And here, here I am. But what does he do? What does he say? He says, who am I? I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. He says, I am just a voice. He actually goes back 700 years to the words given to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, and he says, I am just a voice. That's who I am. I'm not the substance I'm not the content. I'm just the communicator. I'm not the person. I'm not the word. I'm just a finger pointing to the path, pointing away from myself, pointing to the Messiah. Personally, I, I cannot imagine the temptation that John must have faced. He could have had a lot of fame. He could have established for himself a really good fortune from his ministry. But we are told that he took nothing for himself. In fact, John 3, speaking of Jesus and John the Baptist, John the Baptist will actually say, we'll see this in several weeks, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must increase in my life and in the world, but I must decrease. Decrease. I must make myself as low as possible. Listen, this is the attitude, the posture of the heart that you and I must strive for. I am nothing. You and I are nothing. Why? Because he is everything. This is John the Baptist. This is who he was. I'm just a voice, he says. Moving into verse 24, it says, Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, this group of religious leaders, and so they asked him another question. Then, why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why are you baptizing? So, the question we see has shifted a little bit. 
they've moved now from who are you to who gave you the right to do this? Who gave you authority? Who do you think you are telling us and others in our nation to repent? Who gave you the right to do this? Why are you doing this? And I love how John the Baptist pivots here, how he moves or shifts the conversation. We're going to see Jesus does this a lot as well. John the Baptist does it in the same spirit. He says this, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, speaking of Jesus. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So we, we once again see John moves the conversation very intentionally, purposefully. He moves the conversation away from himself. This is just his heart. These people are here to see John. They want to know about John. Who are you? What are you doing? Why are you here? What authority do you have? But John keeps pointing them to Jesus. It's not about me. It's about him. Let me tell you about the one who's coming after me, he says. And so again, we get a glimpse into who this John was. His extremely deep humility. John says, Jesus is so great and I am so small that I'm not even worthy to bend down, to get on my hands and knees and to untie his sandals. That's what John says. And let me briefly explain to you the significance of that statement. See, in that culture, the relationship between a teacher and a student had the potential to be pretty harsh, okay? Pretty harsh. It actually, we know historically, this relationship between a teacher and a student could actually even get abusive. Where a rabbi, a Jewish teacher, would expect his follower, his younger disciple, his student, to perform all of these very unreasonable acts of service for him. Like, just do all these tasks to do these tasks because you're lower than me, okay? But there were some rules of what the rabbi could not make the student do. And one of the tops of the list, something that was off limits, no matter what, because it was just too low, was a rabbi could never ask and could never expect his disciple to untie his sandal straps. Why? Because that job was reserved for a slave. Okay? Only a slave. Okay? This is why later on you'll see when uh, Jesus is going to get his feet washed, by, by the way, and, and he says, and the disciples are like panicking. You can't do this, right? You can't wash our feet. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I can do anything, okay? Um, he sets that example. It's because that's a, that's a job reserved for a slave. You don't touch feet in that culture, right? Open-toe sandals, there's no roads, things get pretty nasty, okay? So you're not allowed to go towards a person's feet, right? Even when you ate dinner or ate a meal, your feet were always away from the table. They reclined down. Your feet were never towards the food. They were always away behind you, Okay? So you could not untie sandal straps, disciple to teacher. It's reserved for the lowest of lows in that cultural context. But here John says, I'm not worthy 
to even untie Jesus' sandals lower than a slave. That's how he sees himself. That's how he sees himself in front of Jesus, in front of God. That's the gap between him and I, John says. That's the one who is about to come. See, John speaks extremely boldly here. There is this confidence. Don't forget who he's talking to. These are religious leaders. And what he says to these religious elite leaders, he says to them, you have no idea who's coming. These are people who memorize the Old Testament. They know who's coming. They know the Messiah is coming. But John says to them, you don't know who's coming. (laughs) And and this boldness is not rooted in his own self-confidence. Rather, it's rooted in his his humility. It's rooted in his humility, which comes out of his high view of Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is another essential for us if we want to be effective witnesses for the gospel. Yes, we need to be bold. We have to have confidence. Yes, we we have to be humble, but that humility has to come out of a low view of ourselves that's rooted in a very high view of him, the person of Jesus Christ. You see, as John humbled himself under Jesus, as he did that, we see that he's actually totally unworried about what anybody would think of him because he's going out there to fulfill the task that God has given him. He's going out there more concerned about what God thinks about him than anyone else. And so if we're going to be effective in turn, if we're going to be effective witnesses for the gospel, for Jesus, we have to do the same. And that does, doesn't mean that we need to go right, by ourselves and live out in the woods, right? It means I'm not advocating or saying that you can only wear camel hair the rest of your life. But what it does mean is that we need to take our eyes off of ourselves. We have to work hard to take our eyes off of others' opinions of us, and we have to see Christ first and foremost. It's not about what I look like. It's not about being liked. If I need to be a fool for Jesus and the gospel, so be it. Because it's not about me. It's never been about me. Honestly, I was thinking about this this week. Honestly, in my own life, people I know, I, I truly believe that the primary reason that you and I do not tell other people about Jesus is because we are all so full of pride. Every single one of us. Because for those of us who are Christians here, we've all done this. We've all done this thing. We've been standing with someone. We've been next to someone who doesn't know Jesus. And you know what I'm talking about. The Holy Spirit in that moment prompts you and says just really simple words. Tell them. Tell them. Tell them about Jesus. And this is what we do. We come up with a million good excuses not to do it, don't we? I'm not ready. I haven't been a Christian that long. I really don't know that much about the Bible yet. I didn't pray this morning. What if they get upset with me? Right? What if they stop being my friend? Right? How many of us don't tell our friends about Christ because we're worried we'll lose that friendship? 
When really, by not telling about Christ, you're doing the most unloving thing you could ever do. What kind of friend wouldn't tell another friend about Jesus who doesn't know Jesus? Or we think, what if this person gets offended? Right? Or another one that's difficult, but it's, it's true. What if me telling this person about Christ affects my job? What if I lose respect in the room, right? But when we do that, when we do all of those things, what we're actually doing is making, making witnessing about us. It's about us, me, myself, and I, right? It's pride. It's pride that needs to be repented of. So we see that John is humble because he continually shifts the focus, the glory, onto Jesus. Yet, at the same time, he is bold. He is strong. He tells the truth. And that made him incredibly effective in his ministry. So that's John the Baptist. Okay, That's the messenger himself. And then we turn to verse 29, and here we're starting to get into John's message. We looked at the messenger, now we turn to the message of John. John the Baptist, the messenger, now we look at John the Baptist and his message. The Apostle John writes this, starting in verse 29. The next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we see here in the text what John specifically came to do. He sees Jesus coming towards him and he cries out this word, Behold. For those of us who have been here since the beginning of this year, that should be a familiar word to you. It's our word and theme for the year, right? The word behold. John is saying to the crowd, stop, pause, pay attention, shift your focus, change your attention, fix your gaze upon this man and the truth about him, who he is, and what he has come to do. He says, behold, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. And here what we find in this one sentence is the essence of the entire Christian message, actually. This is the gospel abbreviated, if you will. Because here we find that there is sin. In one simple statement, we find that there is sin and there is forgiveness. If you're not familiar with the core of the Christian message, it's this, that you and I sin, period. <laughs> we have sinned and we do sin. And that sin has separated us from God. Because you and I choose to walk in darkness, we have been separated from the light of the world, from life. But in the midst of that hopelessness, while we live in this fallen and broken world, John proclaims, here comes the Lamb of God who is here to take away the sins of the world. Here comes the one who can restore our broken relationship with God. And, and let's understand this as well. For a first century Jewish person, the audience listening in on that day, this would have been uh, monumental, okay? See, they grew up 
Jewish people grew up under this very strict sacrificial system where you, require, you were required, actually, to offer sacrifices to God to atone for or to pay for your sins. And now, this, this group of people who's been living under these rituals and rules and system, now they are hearing from John the Baptist, someone is here, this, the person has arrived who is here to atone for your sins once and for all. See, you and I as Gentiles, non-Jewish people who didn't grow up under the system, we're a little bit disconnected from this, right? We aren't living around sheep and lambs and goats here in Seoul, right? And even if you grew up on a farm, my best guess is you weren't raising them for sacrificial purposes, okay? But the people listening to John that day would have deeply connected to this message. Because listen, they knew, they knew that sin always requires a payment. Every single time. Sin must be atoned for. The author of Hebrews, Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And so they would have remembered you can imagine them sitting here hearing this message. They would have recalled or remembered when Isaac and Abraham were walking up this, this mountain. You remember the story? right? Abraham is told by God, you have to sacrifice your son, your one and only son. And he and, he and Isaac are walking up this mountain. And Isaac, as the son, asks his father this, oh my goodness, heart-wrenching question. Isaac asks Abraham, where is the sacrifice? Dad, dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham, knowing God has asked him to sacrifice his son. And what does Abraham say back to his son? He says, God will provide a lamb. What faith. What incredible faith. But it was also a prophecy of one who would, who would come. The Jewish people that day who heard this message from John the Baptist, they would have thought about the Passover back to that day when they were delivered by the blood of the lamb, the, the lamb that was shed and the blood that covered the doorposts. And after that, them being set free from Egypt, God delivering them, setting them free from captivity, they would have recalled, again, this group of people who, who knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. They would have recalled in that moment Isaiah 53, which talks about the lamb being led to the slaughter for the sins of many. And so John the Baptist's message here would have been so profound to them. You see, we know the law was good. There was nothing wrong with the law. The system that God had set up for the Jews, it worked for them. But there was one major shortcoming with the law. And that is that it could not produce life. The sacrificial system that God established, the sacrificing of animals, it could cover their sin. But listen, it couldn't take away their sin. But now, John the Baptist comes and says, there he is. Here is Jesus. And he is here to take your sins away. 
He is here not to just atone for your sin, but to set you free from sin. Jesus came and did what the law could not do, take away our sins. He came to bring us from death to life. This is why we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, our faith as Christians is covered in the blood of Jesus. And this reality must be primary in our witness. It must be primary in our, in our thinking. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus, yes, he absolutely came to give you abundant life. That is true, and it is so good. Jesus came to the earth and worked miracles, and he is still continuing to work miracles today. That is true, and that is so good. But listen, those things are the benefits of the gospel, not the gospel itself. The gospel centers upon Christ, who took our sin, the sacrificial lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is John's message It's Jesus' message. And we can't just know this. We must believe it. This must not be something that just exists in our head intellectually. It must make its way, this truth must make its way into our hearts and impact the way that we actually live our lives. You and I, this is our reality. You and I, continue to live in a broken and fallen world. That is true. But yet, if you have put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are paid for. They aren't just covered over. They aren't masked and hidden. Your sins aren't ignored and and swept underneath a rug. Jesus has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. Amen? And if we truly know this and believe it, it breaks the power that sin has over your life so that actually you and I no longer need to struggle. You can defeat sin and its power in your life because the Lamb of God has conquered your sin, past, present, and future. So this is John the Baptist. This is his message. This is the gospel. Jesus is the lamb who takes away our sin. He died the death that I deserved. He paid the price that I should have paid. And he rose from the dead so that I too, you too, can be resurrected. All I need to do, all you need to do, is believe in him. There is life in his name. Well, then we bring our time together to a close by looking at verses 30 through 34. Very briefly, John the Baptist says this, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. That should sound familiar. We almost echoed those words two weeks ago. This is again, John saying, Jesus is eternal. He's saying, I was born before Jesus, but he was before all things. (laughs) And so he's above me. Then he says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water 
that he might be revealed to Israel. I want to be really clear on this statement. It's caused a little bit of confusion at times, I think. Because we know that John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. Um, after all, they're cousins, actually. Okay? They're cousins. They're family. But what we do know is actually they didn't grow up together. Okay? Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Okay? We know that. John the Baptist grew up. We don't know exactly, but at some point, out in the wilderness. Okay? And so this is more saying, John is more so saying here, I, I, I know him, but I didn't know everything about him. In other words, all that he would do and how he would do it. I couldn't wrap my mind around that. So what I did was I just came out here and started preaching and baptizing, believing with faith that he would be revealed. That's what he's saying. And then he says this, and John bore witness, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness, John the Baptist says about Jesus, I have seen and have borne witness that this, this man, is the Son of God. So we see here John the Baptist quite brilliantly here, actually. He now comes full circle. And now, actually, he answers the religious leader's question, their original question. We see now on what authority he has been preaching and baptizing, right? He says, he who sent me, meaning God himself has sent me to baptize, sent me to preach, sent me to reveal the Messiah to the world. And we have here, what we have here is the first human testimony of who Jesus is and was as well. John the Baptist says, I have witnessed with my very own eyes. I was in the water with him. I was baptizing him that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus had the ability to be the lamb. He had the power to take away the sins of the world because he was God in the flesh. That's what John the Baptist is saying. He was the word made flesh who dwelt among us. And there is a significant truth, actually, a secondary message included in these words from John as well. He's already told us the gospel. He's given us the main thing, the essence of the Christian faith, that in Jesus there is forgiveness, there is removal from sins. But now we see on top of that, Jesus has come to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, and why? Well, primarily to help us to actually overcome our sin and to become more like the person of Jesus Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's primary responsibility. See, this is what Jesus came to do. Jesus actually came to give us the power to change, the power to change our lives, to leave our sin and enjoy the fullness of eternal life that is found in him. But this only comes from being immersed in the Holy Spirit, from being saturated with the person of Jesus Christ, from being centered on the reality of the gospel. And so with all of this today, I believe the takeaway from our text is simple. It's really simple. A lot of narrative here, a lot of verses, but the takeaway is simple. With the totality of your life, 
point other people to Jesus. That's the message today. When people ask you life advice, show them Jesus, not your life. When they see your healthy marriage and they want to know how to do it, point to the lamb. Your business is going really well and they want advice. How how do you do all these things? Tell them, look to the lamb. (laughs) It's rooted in him. How I live, it's all in him. You and I, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm speaking to myself. We are so tempted, so tempted to make everything about ourselves. We're so quick to talk about ourselves, right? You know this. You ask a person for coffee and you're like, how are things going? You're not listening because you're just waiting to start talking, right? We make so much of this life about us, so tempted to make our own names great. So tempted to build reputations for ourselves when in reality, all I should be doing, my whole life should just be devoted to pointing to him. My life should act as a finger pointing to the sun. So today, let me ask you, actually, the same question that the religious leaders asked to John the Baptist that day. Let me ask you a really simple question today. Who are you? What do you say about yourself? What's your story? My prayer is that like John the Baptist, we would say, who am I? I'm a voice here to tell you about the King of Kings who changed my life. Who am I? I'm a finger. (laughs) That's it. Here to point you to the way, the truth, and the life, the one who transformed everything about me. May the cry of our hearts agree with the psalmist in Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name, give glory. For it's all about him, it's always been about him, and it will always be about him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me pray for us. I'll ask the praise team to come and join me back on the stage.